You're listening to The Interview. In-depth retailer interviews with inspirational people. Hosted by Ben Bland. Brought to you by The Retail Exchange. In association with Retail Focus Magazine and Visual Thinking. Inspiring retail performance. Welcome to The Retail Exchange Podcast. I'm Ben Bland and with me is Gavin Aldred, the owner of SupremeBeing.com. Gavin has more than 40 years of experience within the industry. We're going to talk about the challenges of physical retailing for the big high street retail brands. We'll also discuss his company's approach to selling online, why he thinks niche is the future and the importance of taking an ethical stance. Ahead of the World Retail Congress, which starts next week, we'll draw on his broad experience throughout the industry. Gavin, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, Just tell us about your career path that's brought you to the the point you're at now running this company. Well, I I grew up in Manchester. Um, I went to grammar school. Uh, I left at 18 uh, and joined Marks and Spencer's Junior Management Training Scheme. But I'd worked in boutiques in Manchester from the age of probably 15. I was quite tall and skinny, so I, I got away with being 16. And I, the first job was in a boutique that sold uh, clothes to skinheads. And I was a skinny, long-haired youth who they <laughs> took an instant dislike to. But I used to sell lots of stuff, and I you know, I got the bug of retail. So I joined Marks & Spencer's uh, management training scheme when I left school. Um, I worked with them for six years. Um, in six different places in the country. Uh, fantastic training. Uh, and then I got uh, headhunted to go and join Carrefour Hypermarkets, who had six giant hypermarkets in the UK. I think they're Asda's or something now, um, to run the, help run the non-food side of that business. And three years after that, I got headhunted again to go and live in Kuwait to build a luxury department store called Al Halajia. So that was an amazing experience. Um, culturally, business-wise, everything. And because you're basically white and wear a suit and shirt and tie, they think you know everything. So at the age of, I don't know, 27 or something, I was running this huge business, building this huge business, pretending I knew what I was doing. Um, But I used a lot of management consultants um, while I was doing that project, and I wasn't terribly impressed with any of them. So when I came back to the UK uh, in 85, I set up a a consultancy called Retail Solutions. And during that period, I met Tom Singh, who was the founder of New Look, which at the time was a 55-store small regional chain in South Wales and the southwest of England. And he pestered me for a year um, to go and look at the business. And I, I really didn't have time. I'd opened an office in Australia. I was running backwards and forwards there. But anyway, I went there, he drove me around some of the shops, and I just saw this massive potential. Um, so I worked with him for about another year and eventually drew up two plans for the business. One, keep doing what you're doing now, and it was a profitable business, you know, grow organically, just 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 keep doing more of the same. Or bet the farm and go for it because there's something there. So we hired Ralph Halpin, who used to run... Uh, Arcadia, the Burton Group, uh, or Sir Ralph Halpin, who I who I knew, and he reviewed the plans with us for a couple of days uh, at an away day in Windsor with the management team, and we decided on the bet the farm strategy. Um, so I I became a non-exec director, and then the family asked me to come and work full time with them to execute the plan, 
which I did. So in 10 years, we took the store numbers up by 10 to 550, um, the sales up by 20 and the profit up by 30 and floated, at which point I bailed out and went, went to live on my luxury yacht in the south of France. No, not, not <laughs> quite a luxury yacht, but I, I retired to the south of France, which mm. was always been a dream. So what then drew you to Supreme Being, having achieved in retail what many people would set out to do and perhaps never do across a career, what then brought you back into it from the south of France? Well, I'd developed a career as a sort of junior rock star, um, so I went off to, I left South France and went to live in Los Angeles. Um, Literally a rock star. Yeah, I, I, I had a rock band and um, the last gig, big, big gig we played was the Royal Albert Hall. Um, for the, we opened the music week for the Teenage Cancer Trust uh, music week. So that, that was great. And Roger Daltrey sort of was our mentor and vetted us. And, what was your role in the band? Uh, lead singer, uh, uh, head ego. <laughs> uh, I, and I wrote the songs as well. So okay. I had a seven-piece band, most of them Irish uh, session guys. Sounds a, sounds a wonderful creative outlet. What, what was it then that made you think, right, there's something about retail that's going to pull me back in? Well, it, it, it was totally accidental. Uh, my son um, has a, a, a UX, UI technical company. His uh, senior partner in, in the business... Um, I met him a couple of times. He found out my background in retail and said, look, I know these guys in Cambridge, supreme being, who need help. Uh, would you give them some advice? So I met them and sort of got intrigued by the business. Um, they were mainly a wholesale business, but it was an interesting brand. So we put some money in and put a plan together for them. Um, but it, it, it was too late, really. They, they were just so heavily indebted. Um, you know, over the years, they, they just built up um, debt with suppliers all over the world. So the, the only solution really was to put it into some kind of liquidation. So uh, try and recover what you could. And um, I sort of bought the intellectual property and decided to, instead of it being a wholesale business, which is a dead-end kind of industry anyway, um, turn it into an online business, which in intrigued me because I've never been involved with an online business as a retailer. I've done every other kind of retailing, but I've not done online. So it was a challenge. And did your son's expertise come into play? No, he's not helped me at all. <laughs> 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 well, he helps me by criticising everything we do. <laughs> uh, some of it's uh, justified criticism. We all need critical friends. We all need well, critical uh, yeah, friends. but you're, you're never a hero in your own family, that's for sure. <laughs> so uh, tell us about the journey that you took Supreme Being on. Well, we, it was obvious that wholesaling is a dead model. Um, if, you, if you look at the, um, the dynamics of wholesaling, retailers want a three times markup on what they buy. So if, you, if they sell something for 30, they want to buy it for 10. So then you've got to produce this thing um, for the 10 pounds, and then you've got the cost of lookbooks, the cost of uh, international trade shows, um, photography, um, distribution, agents, all the rest of it. Well, you, get, you get down to it and there's nothing left. There's nothing left for you. Um, also, retailers are very slow at paying. So, you know, you can be waiting a couple of months to get your money. Um, they're ruthless about uh, the slightest infringements like delivering an hour late to their depot and all that stuff. So, you know, you just become a whipping boy. So I didn't want to be involved in that. 
Um, and the other thing I set out, I didn't want to be involved in anything that was destructive to the planet because I have been involved in that and I made a lot of money doing it, but I've become more and more aware of the destructive um, side of the fashion industry globally, the textile industry. Uh, and I didn't want to be part of that. So that led me down a path, well, I wanted everything to be organic, everything to be harmless to the environment and harmless in the production. I want it to be ethical. I want to make sure the people involved in the whole process are paid properly and treated properly. Um, and I want it to be online and direct to consumer. So give us some examples of how you have made sure that supremebeing.com is socially, environmentally, ethically responsible as a company? Well, we, um, you know, we scour, well, there were two things. We had to invent a new business model. Um, what, are, what, for the company? For, or the, for the company, um, because we weren't going to wholesale anymore. So I wanted to sell direct to consumers, so we had to find product. A long story short, we discovered um, a supplier um, who, who supplies from a factory in India, that's entirely powered by solar and wind power, recycles 95% of the water. If you see the videos of the factory, you could eat your lunch off the floor, which is very unusual for India, let me tell you. Um, I know India well, but this is this is this would not be out of place in Silicon Valley. Uh, and um, it's all organic cotton. Um, it's all GOTS approved dye stuffs, which is um, organic dye stuffs as well. So they really, they really care, and they, um, you know, they're, they're the best we found, and the quality of the product was great. So that was a decision made there. Then there was a question of, well, how do we get things printed up? And normally one gets things printed, you send a sample to India or a tech pack to India or China or somewhere in Asia. They make a sample, they send it back to you, you approve it or change it. They then make... They need to make minimum order quantities, and they're normally at least 300 uh, per, per design, per color, which is far too much for a small startup, effectively a startup business again. So again, I did some research in the UK and found uh, a printer in the UK near Lincoln who could print to the standard, who was willing to do more or less these short production runs of six or 12 or 24 rather than threes and four four hundreds um and we we struck a deal that we'll pay them more than they would normally get paid uh and they do small quantities and uh, that way we don't have any stock risk within the retail industry how important are those kind of individual small time suppliers well i think they're very important but there's a problem that um the big retailers need big volumes and it's not just about the price, it's about the capacity, um, which drives them to the Far East and, and places like that. But you do lose control of the supply chain when you do that. Uh, for, for all of the checking, the, the cursory checks that the big brands do, they don't go to the factories where the stuff's really made. They get they get shown show factories. I mean, I've been through it with, with New Look and others for years. Um, you know, when you dig beneath the surface, there are some appalling um, labor practices and going on all around the world just so we can buy cheap crap and i just don't want to be involved in that do you think there's a backlash against that by consumers now i, th I think there's not enough of a backlash but i think it will come um you know part of my talk uh, next week in, in in madrid is about 
the future is selling less for more, not selling more for less, which has been the trend over the last 30 years. So buy less, pay more for it, and keep it longer. The fashion industry, the more you analyze it, is, is one of the biggest contributors to pollution on the whole planet. But it's not just the fashion industry, is it? It's, the, it's, it's us, the consumers, because in an Instagram world, it's almost the pressure to not have the same outfit on at a, a party a week later that people get so used to the idea of um, having a vast range of, of fashion and clothing that what you're talking about is changing a whole mindset of the people you're selling to. Yeah, it, it's true. Uh, we, we've, it was interesting in the... 2008 financial crisis that it turned out that if we stop buying crap we don't need with money we don't have the wheels fall off <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and, and oscar wilde famously said that fashion's so horrible you have to change it every few months um but if, so here's a mind-boggling statistic there are 140 billion pieces of clothing made every year that's 20 for every human being on the you know man woman and child on the on the planet 75% of which will ultimately end up in landfill or wrap around some dolphin's head in the Pacific or something. Um, it's astonishingly wasteful and damaging to the environment. I mean, cotton is the dirtiest crop in the world. But while smaller companies like SupremeBeing.com and other specialist brands can start to make changes, doesn't it need the bigger brands, like the ones you've worked for in the past, like Marks & Spencer, like New Look, to really buy into this for it to make a difference on a grand scale? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see New Look, for example, take a stance and say, we're we going here. We're going organic. We're going, you know, um, sustainable. We, you know, just really somebody stick a flag up and and stick to it but the, the issue is i think that you know organic cotton for example is own is less than half a percent of all the cotton grown on the planet you know so if you if you, you can force change but it's not going to come quickly you can't suddenly change the whole world to organic cotton because presumably some of these big firms will see that that is another scenario of having to bet the farm because they have built models and increased profits on the sell more for less frame of mind. Yeah, uh, and you can see them all struggling. And New Look has got its got its own problems, um, which are well publicised. H and M have got problems. Topshop have got problems. They've all got problems now because the 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 world is oversaturated with the stuff they sell. Um, and I think young consumers, first of all, don't have much money, but secondly, are pickier. Although not as picky as you'd think. I mean, we did. When I was at New Look, we did a lot of research on would people pay more for ethically sourced products. And, of course, it's one of those things that if you're asked, you say, of course I would. So we'd put, you know, two rails of dresses, identical, one three pounds more than the others, and you'd sell none of the dearer one and sell out of the cheaper one. So whatever people say, they behave sometimes differently. What you've set out as your vision there does it come with particular marketing challenges or do you think it markets itself no no nothing markets itself anymore the, the, but there's such noise and static um on every channel whether it's tv radio movies podcasts i mean you we're inundated with with noise um and you know ethical blah 
environmentally friendly, blah, who cares? Um, in the end, it's, <laughs> it's having an attractive product that you can get in front of a receptive consumer. Uh, and not just receptive to the product, but receptive to the ethos. So what approach do you take at Supreme Being? Well, we're, we're examining that at the moment. It's, it's our next challenge. So we've established a really efficient production model. We've onshored the printing. We've, uh, we've got an ethically sound product, a great quality product. Um, we've got a, a good core, a growing core of uh, consumers around the world uh, in 35% of uh, our sales now are to people who bought uh, more than once within the last 12 months. Our returns rate is 3%, um, largely because we only sell to men. Um, women are terrible. They're, 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 you know, the returns rate of online companies is about 40%, mm. rendering the whole transaction massively loss-making. Do you see a, a point in the future where you have physical stores on the high street? It, it's getting harder and harder and harder to make money out of stores. I don't know. How, you know, the, the, I worked out the average Arcadia store, you know, Philip Green Empire, um, probably makes less than £300 a week profit for, for all that, you know, for the, for the, after the rent, the rates, the staff, all that stock, all that lighting, all that promotional material, all that stuff. If it's 300 quid a week, it's like the shop, shop manager's salary. So do you think online retailers have it far easier than high street? Well, no. Um, there are a number of reasons why, why it's not that much easier. The biggest one being returns. You, if you're in the fashion side of online, it's a disaster area. You know, 40% returns rate really is a disaster. First of all, it renders the transaction unprofitable. Secondly, you cannot um, technically or easily put that product back into the whole machine, the distribution machine. You know, because it's random sizes, styles, colours. But how then do retailers who are online deal with that? How do they address that problem? Well, they, they struggle with it, which is why their margins are so low. You know, if you look at ASOS, I mean, you look at their, their profit mar their margin to sales. I mean, it's, I think it's grown to sort of four and a half, five percent And they're massive. But again, they offer free shipping. There's no such thing as free shipping. Who ships free? I mean, the consumer doesn't overtly pay for it, but they covertly pay for it because it's in the price of the product. But, you know, sending free stuff to Australia and giving free returns is, is just moronic, frankly. So when you look at retail as a whole, what are your worries for the, for the future of the industry, both online and physical? I, I'm not worried about retailing. I'm worried about the planet. <laughs> um, I think retailing has to shrink. I think one of the... Th first of all... Um, but no industry wants to become smaller. It's going to have to. I, there's a declining birth rate uh, right across Europe, right across America, right across Japan, the developed world, we, we would call it. Um, and the overall population figures uh, are remaining constant or increasing slightly, but that's because of aging consumers. It's not because of the birth rate. The, the replacement birth rate is 2.1 per woman, and it's in, in Europe, across Europe, it's 1.6. So, so you're going to have less consumers or less of your traditional kind of consumers uh, anyway, so you're going to have to shrink. Secondly, the world and his wife dived into you know, the barriers to entry to build a website and start an e-commerce 
business are very low. And it's, it's almost like being attacked by mosquitoes, you know. You hardly see them, but they're just taking a chunk out of you here that Warby Parker in sunglasses or... Uh, Everlane in sort of basic uh, clothing or you know all these online companies now and especially very small ones are just focusing on one product like socks or boxer shorts or earwax I, I don't know what <laughs> but you know to, to set mm. up and become a sort of niche specialist is very easy and very low cost at the moment um, and it's just taking little bits all the time out of the traditional retailer so I'm not worried about Retailers. So who will survive in that environment? Is it the niche uh, specific retailers or is it the bigger players? Well, I think if you're talking bricks and mortar, um, I think you're either a deep discounter or you're a luxury brand. Everything in the middle is getting killed. We got a sense of the message you're hoping to get across at the World Retail Congress about the importance of social, environmental, ethical considerations for, yeah. for retailers. What are you hoping to hear? What are you hoping? What ideas are you hoping to walk away from the sessions with? Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm just open-minded. It'd be nice to just sort of smell the air. And just finally, where do you look to and who do you look to for ideas and inspiration? If you look at society, if you look at music to go back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, the whole industry now is about almost, almost everything is about remixing. You know, if you don't look at the whole hip-hop and um, mm. rap culture, which is, which is massive, uh, particularly in America, it's all remixing. Um, it's often said there's nothing new under the sun. And, and certainly, you know, looking back at my time with New Look and, and other retailers, they're all pinching each other's ideas, or whether it's from the catwalk or each other. or it, it, They call it development, but actually it's just a, ki a kind of um, theft. I have to ask, is the band still going? No, I'm still sort of, I still write and sing and play, but it, I can't afford to be a rock star. It's just <laughs> too expensive. <laughs> Financially, physically, morally, everything. Pursuing a solo career. <laughs> in, my own, in my own bedroom. Gavin, thanks very much indeed. A pleasure. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange Podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. This episode is brought to you by retail transformation agency Visual Thinking in association with Retail Focus magazine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>